Well, I want to extend my uh, welcome to you guys and uh, just thank you for the way that the church uh, responds in prayer and in care and in love and support. Um, I hope you know that uh, what just happened here uh, is uh, a picture of what the church ought to be. When we rally around and we support and we care and we shoulder one another's burdens and we intercede on behalf of someone else who uh, maybe they're weak in their spirit, they're weak in their soul, and, and, and there's something that happens when the church comes around and says, hey, we got you. We are in this with you together. And so thank you guys for uh, responding uh, that way this morning. Uh, today we are jumping right into uh, continuing this section here in Mark chapter 2. So if you've got your scriptures, you can go with me. Uh, we're right here in this part where uh, Jesus is healing a paralytic, and we looked at that part of the, the text last week. This week is really we're focusing on the back part of those first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. And today we're going to be confronted with a choice. This is really what's kind of held out in front of us uh, this morning through this text, we're going to be confronted with a choice that Jesus either is who he says he is, or he's a fake. That Jesus is either faithful, or he's fake. Maybe you've heard it this way before in the past, that he is either a lunatic, or he's Lord. And so we're going to hold this out today. And my prayer is that uh, our response will be the same response from each one of us that happens at the end of this portion of Scripture. And so we are back in Mark chapter 2, and there are three controversial events that happen in this passage. And these three controversial events hap uh, highlight that either he is fake or faithful, that he is lunatic or he's Lord. So to catch us up, I just want to read these first 12 verses and then we're going to dive in, jump right in this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 2. Uh, when he entered uh, Capernaum, again, Jesus had been out ministering. Uh, as we looked at a few weeks ago, the leper, Jesus told him, go show yourself to the priests. He didn't. Uh, he was, had all this zeal, but he was disobedient. He went and told everybody and it sort of pushed Jesus out into the countryside. And so a few days gone by, things have settled down, Jesus is coming back into uh, the city. This is home base for Jesus. So again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Again, remember, this is uh, what Jesus declared. This is his purpose in coming, was to preach the word. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they went down, when they had broken through, they let down on the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Again, something that is internal, it's hard to quantify, maybe it's hard to see an immediate change. Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go your way to your house. 
And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. And then this is my hope and prayer today that this would all be our response. So that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So Jesus shows up. He's in Capernaum. Some friends bring their friend to Jesus. They can't get to him. They tear a hole in the roof. They lower him down. And he looks at him and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And that is the first controversial statement that we encounter that Jesus makes in this text as we're trying to evaluate who is Jesus. Jesus makes a statement and he says this, Jesus declares the man forgiven of his sins. In verse 5, he says that. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And right now I'm reading through uh, the, the Bible, kind of doing this uh, uh, plan and that, that, I'm, that I found, and, and I'm in Leviticus right now. Uh, you're welcome to join me if you would like to. And I'm reading uh, lots of, well, there's, there's a lot of stuff about the sacrificial system in Leviticus. We'll just leave it that, that way for everybody. Uh, but, but this was not the system. This was not the process to go through to be forgiven of your sins in first century Capernaum in Israel. This was not it. Matter of fact, N.T. Wright sums it up best this way. He says this, only the priest could declare forgiveness, speaking in the name of God. If that's what the man needed, his friends should take him to the temple in Jerusalem, not to a wandering preacher. You see, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus knows that this greatest, this man's greatest need is not a physical need, it's a spiritual need. And Jesus declares this. He looks at the man and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Despite the process at the time. Jesus was not a religious leader. He was not regarded as a religious leader at this point. He was more regarded at this point early in his life and early in his ministry as a religious disruptor. And yet Jesus steps in in this moment and he makes a bold declaration. He said, son, Another translation says, child, your sins are forgiven you. And this statement, we read it and we go, well, yeah, I mean, he's Jesus. He died on the cross. Like, we got the whole story. We know what happened, of course. But in this moment, it was so controversial. It was so controversial that the religious leaders that were there in this room, something began to happen in their lives. Jesus declares this. He says, your sins are forgiven you. Amazing pronouncement of, of Jesus and his power. And yet there's a group, and I love this, there's a group. Verse 6 says this, but some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And, and we got to be careful not to beat up on these guys. It's real easy to read, you know, oh, the Pharisees, you know, and all that kind of stuff. The religious leaders described. It's real easy to read that now. But again, they were just doing their job. They protected the, the, the system that God had given them. Now, things went awry. They began to add to it. They, they began to, many of them get pompous in their heart because they were the ones that kept the commands. I mean, all this bad stuff began to creep in. But let's not forget that this was their job. It, it was right for them to correctly believe that only God could forgive sins. And it was even correct uh, in their, in their uh, actions to examine this new teacher that was rolling into town. But their error is the same error that we can so easily make, and that is this. They refused to see God. 
They refused to see Jesus for who he was, that he is God the Son, and that because he is God the Son, he has the authority to forgive sins. And there's a word in here that they use that will eventually be the the charge that they will bring against Jesus to actually crucify him later in the book of Mark. And that word is blasphemy. And you say, well, what's the big deal about blasphemy? Blasphemy was a huge deal. Blasphemy was such a big deal that that in, in this day and age, blasphemy was punishable by death. Saying that, that you are God was a, was a bold move. Saying that you have the authority to forgive sins was a bold move. And these religious leaders, they, they begin to think that. They begin to, to question that in their hearts. Is he lunatic or Lord? Is he fake or is he faithful? If he can forgive sins, he's faithful. If he can't, he's fake. And it's interesting to me that the religious leaders that were in this little room did not say these things out loud. I mean, wouldn't that have been the easiest thing to do, to be like, hey, hey, Jesus, excuse me. This is not the system. You can't say that. But that's not what the text says, is it? It says they begin to reason, they begin to ponder, they begin to think these things in their hearts. And this gets us to our second bold declaration that Jesus makes in this passage of scripture. It is this, that Jesus declares he knows the hearts of the religious leaders. He, he, he knows the heart of the religious leaders. Listen to this, verse eight. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? And this wasn't a lucky guess for Jesus. This wasn't a, man, I know my audience and I know these guys are probably pretty skeptical about what just happened and so I'm gonna just sort of throw this out there. This is another bold declaration that Jesus is actually saying, I can see, I know the hearts of humanity. Now, some of you, you may be married to someone who has a a high level of intuition. Uh, I am married to the intuition queen. Uh, My wife can see, you know, we joke all the time, man, she can smell stink from a mile away. I mean, she just gets it. There's been several times in our life where, you know, we get new neighbors or we, 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 you know, we meet new people or or there's a situation like that that comes up in our life and, and I'll be like, wow, these were, you know, great or this went well or, you know, whatever the context may be, you know, just totally oblivious. And Kelly would be like, mm, I don't know about that. I got, a, I got a weird feeling about him. I don't, I don't think something's right there. We need, to, we need to slow down just a little bit, you know, whatever the situation may be in whatever context. And then three months, six months, a year later, you're like, Did you have cameras set up in their house? I mean, like, what was going on with you? Like, you had this eerie intuition where it's like you just knew. That is not what this is with Jesus. This isn't a case of Jesus just guessed and got it right or this thing called intuition. This is Jesus knowing the hearts and seeing the hearts of humanity. This is Jesus knowing the thoughts of these religious leaders, and he calls them out. They kept silent. They kept silent about what they were thinking about, what was going on, what was you know, turning over into their heart. Jesus called them out. And I love this. Jesus knows the hearts of humanity. And yet, no matter what's going on in your heart today, 
No matter how far from God you feel, no matter how bitter you feel, no matter how disappointed you feel, no matter how even angry you feel, Jesus still loves you. And just like he looked at that paralytic that was lowered down through that roof on that mat and said, hey, your sins are forgiven you, he's essentially saying, I love you. By forgiving him, he's saying, I love you. He says the same thing into your heart and your life today. No matter how far you feel like you've wandered, no matter how far you feel like you've drifted and and gone awry and, and, and things just don't make sense anymore, Jesus knows your heart. You can't hide that from him. But he still loves you. And he still cares for you. I want to to take us to a couple of passages to to sort of highlight this for us. Uh, The first one is Psalm 139. You can turn there if if you want to. I'm going to read just a couple of these verses here just to sort of illustrate through Scripture this point that Jesus, he declares that he can see the hearts of these religious leaders, that he knows the hearts of humanity. Listen to this, Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting up. You know my rising up. You understand my thought from afar. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me uh, behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I just want to encourage you to go back through and read all of Psalm 139 this week. Even if you're kind of, I don't know where to start with a devotion, maybe this would be a really great place to start. And just see that, that God, he knows you and he cares for you in this passage. I want to take you to one other place, uh, Psalm 44. You can turn there if you want to, or uh, I'm going to read it out loud for us here. Psalm 144, uh, starting in verse 20. If, if we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? In other words, he's saying, if we do something that is wrong, that maybe we think is hidden, the psalmist here is saying, would God not search this out? How? For he knows the secrets of the heart. And Jesus Here in Mark 2, with these religious leaders, says this, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Jesus knows your heart, no matter how messed up it is. And and so many of us, if we just got honest, we'd say, man, my heart is a mess. What what is going on inside my heart, my thought life, my my anxiety? It is is a mess. Jesus knows how messed up it is. He looked into the hearts of these religious leaders. He said, why why do you reason about these things in your heart? Why, why, Why are you concerned about these things in your heart? And Jesus goes on and he says this, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. So Jesus, he declares that he can extend forgiveness to this paralytic. He declares that he can see into the hearts of these religious leaders. But then he kind of saves the best one for last, the big one for last here. Jesus declares himself God 
by saying he's the son of man. Let's just read this. Look this over. He says this, which is easier, verse 9, to say to the paralytic, your, sons, uh, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But so that so but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go your way to your house. Did you catch it? He used this, this word son of man. He made a declaration that, that he is God. And you say, well, where do you get that? I, I don't understand what the Son of Man, what the significance of, of this idea of the Son of Man is. Well, I'm going to take you to a passage. I'm going to give you just a minute to get there, to go to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, it's in the Old Testament. You're going to turn, you know, turn over into the Old Testament a little bit. Set the stage for Daniel. The Israelites have been invaded by the Babylonians. Siege, wrecked the city, wrecked the nation, carried them off into captivity. Daniel is where we get the story of uh, Daniel and the lion's den. It's where Daniel uh, confronts the, 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 the officials and says, hey, we don't want to eat the king's food. Test us and try us and, and see if, if we set ourselves apart and, and we don't partake in the king's food, if actually at the end of this season, if we'll actually be stronger and healthier and better. Daniel is a fascinating, fascinating book. And, and in Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision. He has a dream. And I want to say this to you. If you think the Bible is boring, go read all of Daniel 7. It is wild. I mean, it, it's like if you think about Lord of the Rings, it sort of takes Lord of the Rings and just puts it on steroids. The, the visuals in Daniel's dream. And we don't have time to read it all, but I do want to start in verse 9. Because we need to understand the significance of this as, as we think about Jesus saying, son of man, and what this means and what Jesus was declaring. So just hang with me for just a second, starting in verse 9. I watched till the thrones were put in a place. Daniel's having this crazy dream. And there's these four beasts and these like descriptions of these four beasts and there's heads and there's leopard bodies with four wings. I mean, it's just, it's like, whoa, that's crazy. And he says here in verse 9, I watched till the thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire, a fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Verse 11, then I watched because the sound of the pompous words from which the horn was speaking. This is a reference back to the beast. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. And as for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away and their lives were prolonged for a season and time. And then here's verse 13. I was watching in the night visions and behold one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Remember Mark chapter 1, Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. And the word near is, it's as close as your hand. He's bringing, this is personal. He's personalizing the kingdom of God. 
And right here, Daniel has this vision, has this dream. That this one, this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And tell me if this doesn't sound familiar, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one, which shall not be destroyed. So you think to yourself, okay, Jesus, he shows up, he says, I'm declaring you have forgiveness. I'm declaring I can see into your hearts. And then he says, I'm declaring I'm the son of man. And you say, why did he make that declaration? I mean, there's a lot of titles that Jesus could have used. He could have used Messiah. He could have used Christ. Well, it's an interesting thing. You know how words change over a period of time? This, this morning, uh, I was talking to somebody after the first service because I used the same reference I'm about to use. And, and even then, they, t- they kind of enlightened me on, on this word, and it meant something different back in the 60s and the 70s. Think about the word goat. Now, when I say the word goat, some of you, you think, nah, you know, you think, you think goat. Others of you, when I say goat, you think LeBron James. You, you, you think uh, Tom Brady. You think maybe if you're a little older, you're thinking Joe Montana. And you're going, goat? I thought that was their nickname. No, no, goat means for an athlete, it means greatest of all time. And somebody came up to me after the first service and they said, hey, you know that goat also, we used to call the Pontiac GTO a goat as well. And I was like, see, I didn't know. See, words over time begin to change. And hang with me for just a minute. The reason why Jesus used son of man was very strategic. Because by the time of the first century, the word Messiah had a very different meaning to it than what we look at it today. You see, the Jews in first century, when, when this took place, were under Roman rule. And they had been, their whole history had been one of freedom and then captivity. Freedom and then captivity. Freedom and then captivity. And by the first century, the idea of a Messiah was, yes, one that was going to come. But see, they had their sacrificial system. They didn't need to be set free from their their sin. They, They had the system for that. What they thought that they needed to be set free from was Roman rule. And so if Jesus had used the word Messiah... Or Christ, it would have had a very different connotation to his, to his audience. It would have had a nationalistic overtone, a political overtone. But Jesus uses a word that can really only be fit into this context of Daniel 7. And many commentators that I read this week as I was studying for this said that probably only the religious leaders in the back of the room, just like basketball fans and football fans in the room would have understood the reference to goat that probably only the religious leaders caught what Jesus was saying when he said, son of man. And Jesus in this moment makes a bold, bold declaration. This wasn't a political or a nationalistic sentiment. This was Jesus saying, I am God. I am the one that will bring the kingdom. I am the one that will bring dominion, but it is gonna look different than what you think it's gonna look like. 
And this becomes a favorite reference to Jesus. Again, he, he, he sort of, you know, he's going to be revealed when Jesus is ready to be revealed. And over 80 times in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is Jesus referenced to as the Son of Man. And Jesus references himself 14 times alone in the book of Mark as the Son of Man. And if he is the Son of Man, then he has been given the authority to dispense God's judgment thereby giving him the authority to forgive sins of this paralytic, thereby giving him the same authority that God has to look, as we read in Psalms, the authority to see into humanity's hearts. This was a bold declaration of Jesus. He was saying, the Son of Man, that's who I am. I'm God, is what Jesus was saying here. This is the title that Jesus takes on. And, and we have to wrestle through this, that either Jesus is lunatic or he's Lord. He's either fake or he's faithful. Why? Because titles are only titles until you prove you're worth the title. Titles are only titles until you prove you're worth the title. Some of you, you've got somebody in your office right now. You've got somebody, a coworker. And they've got a title before or after their name. And you may say to yourself, man, you got title next to your name. And it may say manager, but you could manage yourself out of a brown paper bag. Because titles are only titles until you prove you're worth the title. Nevermore, I don't think in at least recent days has I've seen this sort of amplified this last week. I'm driving home from church last Sunday. Went to lunch with some friends and we're driving home and I get a text from Jeff, uh, our worship leader. I get a text from him and he says, it was three words I think, he said, Kobe, dead, helicopter, question mark. What? And you know, you guys know the story, just the, the, the news reports, everything began to flood in. And again, whether you're a basketball fan, a Kobe fan, no matter what, it's, it's a tragedy and we see something like that that was in many ways so senseless and could have been avoided and it just breaks our heart because it reminds us that this world is broken and fallen and it reminds us of people that we love and that we've lost and we look at that and we just go, oh, our heart breaks. But, but Kobe had a title. Kobe had a title. It was his nickname. It was Black Mamba. If you've seen some stuff out there and it says Mamba Forever or whatever it may be, this was Kobe's title that he had on his, on his, on his, for his game. And you say, well, what's Black Mamba? What's that got to do with anything? The Black Mamba is Africans, Africa's largest, most venomous snake. It is lethal. And Kobe sort of took this image, this vibe on, that he was going to be lethal on the court. That he was going to be sort of venomous with his game and that he was going to defeat every opponent he had. And you think about that title. That's pretty bold. But what if Kobe had taken on that title and then went out and averaged 4.9 points, one and a half assists, and one rebound a game over a four-year career in the NBA? We'd be like, dude, you're a joke. You're not the Black Mamba. You're, you're, a, you're a garter snake, not a black mamba. But time and time and time and time and time again, Kobe proved his title. You didn't want to play him. You didn't want to square off with him. You didn't want to guard him. You didn't want to defend him. You did not want to go seven games in the NBA finals with Kobe Bryant. 
and in a much more important, serious, and dramatic way, Jesus puts a title on himself and says, I am the Son of Man, and he proved it time and time again. And no more display was proved of who Jesus was than when he stretched out his arms over humanity on that cross. And he said, I'm willingly going to lay down my life for the sins of people, for the hearts of humanity, and forgive their sins. You see, you thought this, this story of the paralytic was about these crazy guys that dropped this dude through the roof and Jesus healed him. Now, this is the gospel presented in Mark chapter 2 for us. And Jesus says, I'm the son of man. I'm going to forgive because I have the authority to forgive. I'm going to lay my life down because that's what I came to do. And on the third day, I'm going to rise again, proving once and for all who Jesus really was. And so the challenge for each of us today, the challenge for our lives is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's lunatic or he's Lord. He's either fake or he's faithful. See, there's many ideas in the world about Jesus today. Buddhism teaches that Jesus was not God, but an enlightened man like Buddha. Islam teaches that Jesus was a man and a prophet, but was inferior to Muhammad. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was merely the archangel of Michael, nothing more than a created being. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was only a man who became one of the gods and that he was a polygamist and the half-brother of Lucifer. But I love what Mark Clark says, author, scholar, uh, pastor up in Canada. I love what Mark Clark says. He says this, Jesus is where Christianity parts ways with the rest of the world. Because it says that he is and always has been God himself and should be followed and worshipped as such, just as we see happen in this Mark 2 passage. When the paralytic got up and walked out, and verse 12 says, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So the question today, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, no matter where you are on your journey with Jesus, is this, who is Jesus? Jesus.